at Thyatira this morning, I want to begin in verse 18. But before we start, I'm going to remind you uh, some of the things that are going on in the book of Revelation. So in verse 19 of chapter 1, um, basically we have the outline of the book of Revelation. He says there, Write the things which you have seen, the things which are, and the things which will take place after this. And so we believe that this is actually the outline for the book of Revelation. My clicker's not working. Um, but in the outline, we see three different time periods. In verses, excuse me, in verse 19, Jesus instructs the Apostle John, if you remember, he's receiving the vision as he's uh, captive on the island of Patmos by himself uh, for being a believer. Uh, the Lord takes him out there really being persecuted, but he gets a time to hear from Jesus and he gets this vision, if you will. Uh, remember the word apocalypse actually means revealing, um, but in the first part, he says, write down the things that you have seen. So he's writing to the local church, but he's writing what he has seen about Jesus. And then chapter two through three, he starts to, to write letters to seven churches. That's where we find ourselves. And there's three ways to apply these letters. Now, first and foremost, he's writing to seven churches that existed, and he's writing to seven literal churches. And so this isn't just, you know, some sort of allegory. He's writing to seven churches, seven cities that existed. But then he's also writing historically to the church. If you look at these seven different letters, and we haven't spent a lot of time on this, he's looking at seven different periods during the church age that we have experienced. And then personally, this, le these letters are written to us today to take application in the ways that we can relate and see that the Spirit is actually searching our hearts and showing us ways that we need to be corrected, showing us ways that we're doing well, but showing us ways also that we need to be vigilant and sober about our faith. And then in chapter 4 through 22, we'll get to, he's going to say, write down the things that will take place after these things. And so as we begin our letter to Thyatira, in verse 18, he says, write to the angel of the church in Thyatira. So the context means everything. And as we've been going through these letters to these churches, I hope you see the importance of us taking in not just what he says to the churches, but the context in these churches that they're living in. Um, so we have no biblical record of the beginning of the church in Thyatira, but what we do see possibly is that the church in Thyatira was actually birthed by a lady by the name of Lydia. And if you remember in the book of Acts chapter 16, uh, Paul shows up in Philippi and he meets a woman by the name of Lydia who was a seller of purple from Thyatira. Interestingly enough, Paul, being on his missionary journey, wants to go into Asia Minor, which is where all these seven churches are. But as he's wanting to go in that region, he actually finds out that the Spirit does not permit him to go into this modern-day Turkey, as we would call it. And so the Spirit forbids him to go to modern-day Turkey, but then he gets to this place and he's praying, he's saying, Lord, where do you want me to go? And he gets a vision from the Lord, and it's this man in Macedonia begging for someone to come and help him. 
And so he believes that this is the Lord leading him. He crosses over the Aegean Sea. He goes to Philippi there, and he meets a group of women at a river. They did not have enough men, Jewish followers in the town. You would need to have at least 12 to have a synagogue. So they didn't have enough. And so they were meeting at the river, and that's what they would do. And as they were meeting at the river, he meets this woman by the name of Lydia, who is the leader of the prayer group there. There's no men leading. There's a woman by the name of Lydia. And when he shares Jesus with her, she comes to faith. And because of that, there's a church birth in Philippi. Now, eventually, she went back to Thyatira. And many commentators and theologians believe that the church in Thyatira was begun because of her testimony of what Paul had taught her about Jesus. And so we have this church here in Thyatira, and it's about 35 miles southeast of Pergamos, which is the letter we studied two weeks ago. And then there's a small and insignificant, excuse me, this church is small and insignificant comparatively to the rest of the seven. Now, think about it. We've been at Ephesus, which was a major port city. We've been in Smyrna, which was a a city that was also on a port. And then we've been to Pergamum, which wasn't a port city, but it was a a college town. It's a place of higher learning. And so because of these three places being major influences, we would start to think that God only cares about, that Jesus only speaks to big cities. But you and I know different. We're not from a big area, are we? And actually, what's interesting is Thyatira was off the beaten path, It was small and insignificant. It wasn't a power in their culture. And yet Jesus writes the longest of the seven letters to them, telling me that God cares just as much about small towns as he does about large cities. And I love that because we know that personally, if we're walking with Christ, that he doesn't just care about the crowds, that he cares about individuals. Matter of fact, if you read in the, the, the uh, Apostle John's gospel account, in John chapter 4, he actually leaves a city, a group, a crowd, and he says, I must needs go through Samaria, which no Jew would ever go through. And as he gets there, he sends the boys to town to go get lunch, and he waits at the well, and he speaks to who? One person, the woman at the well. And so interestingly enough, this God of creation, he knows all of us. He knows the exact amount of hairs on your head. And even for me, who has fewer and fewer numbers of hairs on my head, it's still a lot. It's st- I mean, just the strands that are there, and even the, the failing strands. He knows those, and he knows intimately everything about you, your thoughts, your fears, your worries, the, your doubts, and at the same time, the things that make you light up, the things you're passionate about the things that no one else knows about you. Think about it. For those of you that are married, we think we know our spouses, but then there's days where we were like, who is this guy or who is this gal? And yet God knows each and every single person, even the ones that have never heard his name, he knows them intimately. And so also Thyatira is an agricultural area. It's rural America, if you will, but it's rural Turkey. It's known for its purple dye. Coincidence? We just talked about Lydia, the seller of purple. And so what we know about purple dye is that it's very expensive. Not just anybody could afford it. And it's because of how it was made. And I didn't spend time to look into how it's made. um, But I do like those videos. 
to watch how it's made on YouTube. I mean, it used to be on TV all the time, but anyway, it's very interesting to see that the way that different things are made. And in fact, purple dye was not made just anywhere. It, it wasn't sourced just anywhere. And so many people believe that this is why this was a city in the first place, in the middle of nowhere. Whatever it was that made this purple dye was in this location. Um, but it was also well known for its trade guilds. Now, trade guilds could be comparative to our American labor unions. It was a place that you would go so that you could definitely guarantee that you would get a place to work. And in this area, if you didn't work for the trade guild, you didn't get to work. So there was trade guilds for wool, wool workers, dyed goods, potters, leather workers, bakers, blacksmiths, and slave traders. If you didn't work for a trade guild, you didn't work. You didn't get no J-O-B. But also, trade guild meetings weren't just for work. They incorporated pagan worship, which included meat sacrificed to idols, wine poured out in oblation to their foreign gods, and, believe it or not, ritual sexual immorality. So, again, this, these things keep coming up in the fabric of society, and you'll notice that as these things are woven deeply into the fabric of society, they actually cause corruption. They actually cause problems, and we're seeing it in our day and age where slave trade is just something that goes on right underneath our noses, and yet we, uh, we don't even know it. Some of us are even naive to the fact that it happens. But for the Christian in this culture... It, it means that there must be some sort of compromise, either in our faith or in how we provide for our families. And compromise, as we studied last week, excuse me, two weeks ago, always leads to corruption. Compromise leads to corruption. Do you believe that? If you compromise your faith, do you believe that even in the slightest way, you're causing there to be problems down the road? It doesn't just start with one compromise and stop. Many times it's one compromise that leads to a, another one and then to another one, and eventually it leads to major problems. Now, if you don't believe me, I want you to take a look at this picture. This is my Jeep. Now, on the left hand, now the right one obviously is not my Jeep. I wish that was my Jeep. That thing's awesome. But on the left, what, what you see is compromise. Do you see any rust? Rust is a picture of corruption. No, what you see is you see a compromise. Is it in the paint? No, it's in the clear coat. Now, paint is pretty, don't get me wrong, but it also protects the metal. That's the original intended purpose of paint. It protects the metal from corruption. But the problem is, is that we, I've got this clear coat on. Obviously, my Jeep is horrendously dirty. But the clear coat over time is starting to peel away. And because I don't care and I can't afford to repaint it, it's going to keep doing that. But for the Christian believer, we have this covering of God. It's his spirit that convicts us of sin. And when we compromise and we just, well, just a little white lie or just a little compromise in our faith or just a little bit of this or a little bit of that ultimately leads to us eventually not only having our clear coat busted up, but then eventually our paint comes off and then eventually the metal rusts. Now in our day and age, you go find a car that looks like that Jeep on the right, that, we call that patina. We don't call it rust, we call it patina. You know? But the reality is, is though patina looks cool, 
it's hard to preserve because eventually it eats away the metal and then you don't have no car. You know, you got a motor with no hood on it and a couple of wheels that are rolling off on the highway and hitting somebody else while you're trying to drive. And so how are we to escape corruption? Well, I have there for you. We escape corruption through knowing and through following Jesus Christ. And if you don't believe me, turn to 2 Peter chapter 1, where the Apostle Peter writes this in verse 2. 2 Peter chapter 1, verse 2. Peter writes, Grace and peace be multiplied to you in the knowledge of God and of Jesus our Lord, as his divine power has given to us all things that pertain to life and godliness through the knowledge of him who called us by glory and virtue, by which we have been given to us exceedingly great and precious promises that through these you may be partakers of the divine nature, having escaped the corruption that is in the world through lust. We have escaped the corruption that's in the world, the thing that is trying to erode your faith. We can escape it through the knowledge of Jesus Christ, through following him, through simply obeying simple commands. We can escape corruption. We can escape compromise, but also for this very reason, verse 5, giving all diligence, add to your faith virtue, to virtue knowledge, to knowledge self-control, to self-control godliness, brotherly kindness, and to brotherly kindness love, for if these things are yours and they abound, you will be neither barren nor unfruitful in the knowledge of our Lord Jesus Christ." For he who lacks these things is short-sighted even to blindness and has forgotten that he was already cleansed from his old sins. Therefore, brethren, be even more diligent to make your call and election sure. For if you do these things, you will never stumble. For so an entrance will be supplied to you abundantly into the everlasting kingdom of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. And so we can escape the corruption that's in the world through lust by simply knowing Jesus, who is the incorrupter. He was not corruptible. Look at his life. He was tempted in every possible way that we can be tempted and that we are tempted, and yet he never sinned because he only did that which pleased the Father, escaping corruption. Now, look around at our world, and you see that there's every branch of the world has been corrupted in some form or fashion. We're getting ready to get close to election time, right? And everybody's screaming, corruption, corruption. But there's not one person saying that that isn't in some form or fashion also corrupt. And I would even bring it home and say, what ways are we corrupt? In what ways have we been breached? What ways are we saying, this is my moral standard, and yet we compromise? And so for the Christian in this culture in Thyatira, tempted towards corruption, there's two options, right? I can join the traders, the, the laborers guild, and I can compromise. I can take part in these guild meetings. And, and in this case, it's not just that they were in these guilds and they, they were participating 
And they were required to participate in sexual sin, some of them. And sin always brings forth what? Death. Or the other option they have, they're between a rock and a hard place, don't join the guild and you get no J-O-B. And then you have no way to feed, you have no way to clothe, you have no way to provide for you and your family. So what are we supposed to do? I wonder where they landed. But I also know where most of us as American Christians, I'm not talking about the world, I'm talking about believers. I know where most American Christians will lean. They'll lead towards compromise when they're squeezed, when they're not allowed to make the raise. You know, I was talking to somebody the other day and they said, well, you know, we're getting ready to take this, this, uh, this trip to um, Charleston, Illinois with the youth of Parkland Chapel. And because of my employment there and because of my leadership there, I'm actually getting to go with them. My buddy Brock's planting a church in his hometown, so we're going to go up there and help him work on their church building. And one of the parents was like, I don't know if my kid's going to be able to go or not because they got a tournament. And I said, okay, well, when's the tournament to start? They said, well, that day. I go, can't they miss one day of the tournament? He goes, well, no, not really. And I said, well, why not? He goes, because he'll get benched the rest of the tournament. And I go, well, you know what? I used to tell my boss all the time, I can go without a raise if I could be home to serve my family on Saturdays and not have to work Saturdays. And he was like, well, you're going to be overlooked for a raise. And I said, I can sleep at night with that. And he said, yeah, but he's been benched for two years. How am I supposed to, you know? And, and I said, well, it just depends on where your heart lies. And, and I'm not saying that it's sin to play in a tournament instead of going on a trip to serve Jesus. I'm just saying that in the long run, if that's going to be your job, I get it. But at the same time, there are times where it's like, I'm going to take a day off when it might cost me. And that's okay. Because there are some things that will last for eternity, and there are some things that will last for a moment. And so all of that to say, uh, I know where most American Christians will lean when they're squeezed. To decide between compromising their faith and getting the raise, it's, it's a hard decision. In this case, it wasn't a raise, it was whether or not they would actually have a job. But I know this, that the King David said this. He said, I've been young and I was old, and yet I've never seen the righteous forsaken or begging for bread. That if we honor God, if we obey the simplest of precepts, here's what happens. God provides, and he always will, even if it means that it's not through what we would consider the way he would provide. So in verse 18, finally, longest intro again. Verse 18, he says this. He says, to the angel of the church in Thyatira, write, these things says the Son of God, who has eyes like a flame of fire, and his feet are like fine brass. So in each one of these letters, Jesus doesn't just tell them what to do. He shows them himself. He says, here I am. And he tells them something specific about himself that will actually help them in their situation. He says, These things writes the Son of God. Now, if you remember in chapter 1, verse 13, he called himself the Son of Man. And yet to this church, he says, I am the Son of God. Now, he says this, not contradicting himself, but Jesus is the Son of God. He he was born of a virgin, a woman, a human being, and yet he is fully God. Here he reminds them, I'm equal with God because they had forgotten and become too familiar with his humanity. 
How many times have you met a Christian that's become so familiar with Jesus being amongst us and with us and a human that they forget that he's the king of kings, that he's the Lord of lords, that he's a master, that he's our creator. And so he's to be hallowed. He's to be respected and and feared. We should have a holy awe of being unpleasing to God or sinning against him. But in his humanity, he's imminent. He's among us. He identifies with us. He became a man to identify with us. A friend, he relates to us. He's been in our shoes. He knows what it's like. And yet, in his deity, being God in human flesh, he's transcendent. He's high above us. He's nothing like us at all. He's holy. He's the king of kings. He's the Lord of lords. He's untouchable. He's the judge of the world. And he will judge all. And so in all of that, he reminds them, I'm, I'm the Lord. I'm God. But then he also says two things. He says, I have eyes like a flame of fire, and I have feet like fine brass. Now, does he have eyes that are literally fire? Does he have feet that are made out of metal or brass? I would submit to you that this is symbolic in a way, uh, but it's also what they call an anthropomorphism. I can't say it. Anthropomorphism, which is taking something and attributing human characteristics to any god, animal, or object in order to better describe them. The Bible does this all the time. In some places, it says the, the arm of the Lord is not short that he cannot save. Does that mean that he has a, a, a physical length to his arm? Or does that mean that he's describing himself? Now, it's interesting, too, because God, though he is, he is present, yet he is spirit. And he is to be worshipped in spirit and in truth. And so he doesn't have a physical body. And yet what it says here is his eyes are like a flame of fire. And this speaks to the purity of his sight, that he cannot be deceived, that he burns through the things that are meant to cloud judgment. So he sees things clearly and completely unhindered. He sees them for what they are. And in Hebrews chapter 4, we see this because he describes his eyesight says there in Hebrews chapter 4, verse 13, the writer of Hebrews says, there is no creature hidden from God's sight, but all things are naked and open to the eyes of him to whom we must give an account. And so his eyes are like a flame of fire. Now this also made me think of something else. If you turn to Matthew chapter 6, in verse 22, Jesus is teaching his disciples in the Sermon on the Mount. Matthew 6, verse 22. He says this, The lamp of the body is the eye. If therefore your eye is good, your whole body will be full of light. Now think about this. For us personally, we have Jesus give us fresh eyes, then we're able to see things purely. But I would also point out to you that we are the body of Christ as Christians. So if Jesus is the head, then he is our eyes, and he sees us 
clearly. He can see the rest of the body, and he can see what's wrong with it. But he can also see what's right with it. It would be like him having literal x-ray vision. He could see through the surface level things to the things that are below and see even to the division of joint and marrow. And if you think about all the cancer that we see people go through, many times they don't see the cancer because it's in certain parts of the body that our machines can't see. And so Jesus, in the letters to the churches, he's actually doing MRI scans that are way better than we could possibly get with our own technology. He's looking into the body of Christ. He's seeing the things that are cancerous. He's pointing them out. If a doctor points out to you that you have cancer, it's the worst thing in the world. Or it feels that way. But if he doesn't, it's the worst thing in the world because you have no chance to do anything about it. So many times God highlights things in our life to point out that we have spiritual cancer and we are treating it as if it's not cancer and we're abiding it. But if he points out that we have problems, he's doing it so that we can be healed and we are not judged with the world. And so he sees things clearly. But he says also, my feet are like fine brass. And if you read from the Old Testament all the way through the New, what we find is that brass is symbolic in all of Scripture of his judgment. And so God judges always based on the holiness of heaven, not man's standards that will change. Many times we fall into the trap of judging ourselves, saying, well, so-and-so does this and I don't, therefore I'm good. But Paul wrote to the Corinthians, when we compare ourselves with ourselves even, as Christians, we're actually fooling ourselves because the standard is not my brother or sister in Christ. It's not even the pastor. The standard is Jesus Christ and his perfection. Jesus doesn't say, be holy for the pastor is holy. He says, be holy for I am holy. And his greatest good for us is to conform us into the image of his son. So he says, here I am, here's, here's me, I'm unveiling this piece of myself to you, and now he's going to show them them. Here's what Jesus knows about them to this church in Thyatira, verse 19. He says, I know your works, your love, your service, your faith, and your patience. And as for your works... The last of them are more than the first. So the things that you're doing most recently, these works that are in your life, they're actually more than when you started. And so I think it's interesting that Jesus commends this church that is compromised and corrupted. But he starts by telling them, here's the things that I like that are going on. What's among these things that was not in the church of Ephesus, which was at the beginning of chapter 2, is love. They were characterized by love. The one thing that was lacking in the Ephesian church that also had works and faith and diligence and all these things produced in their church, and yet he said, I have one thing against you. You've left your first love. You've left me, the source of all these works. And so to this church, he says, you have love, you have faith, and you're growing in works. And I would submit to you, because my pastor said this, he says, out of love and faith grow service and patience. Out of love and faith 
grow service and patience. And so what's interesting about this is that they were growing in works, which proves that their love for Christ was actually being fostered and growing. Would it be said of us, not so much just that we're working harder, but that our love for Christ, out of a love, recognizing how much we've been loved by Christ, that it will be multiplied. And that the love that we experience and know and, and, and have in Christ would actually be multiplied daily, personally, as we walk with Christ. But out of that will come service and patience. And that takes faith. But then he says, after saying the things that he likes, in verse 20, he says, Nevertheless, I have a few things against you. Now, I don't know about you, but I, I don't care if people have things against me. They're going to. But if Jesus has something against me, I want to correct it. I want to deal with it. So he says, these things I have against you because you allow that woman, Jezebel, who calls herself a prophetess to teach and seduce my servants to commit sexual immorality and to eat things sacrificed to idols. So I don't know about you, but there are several names in the Bible that it seems like most people avoid naming their children. Um, and I say this with, with fear and trembling because as soon as I say this, somebody's going to go, well, I got a cousin, Jezebel. You know, or, but there's another one. My pastor was preaching at a church in Annapolis for his dad a few years back when he taught this. And he actually named the name of Nimrod. And there was somebody down there that was named Nimrod. And, and afterwards, somebody came up and they were like, man, you, you just missed it because I got a cousin named Nimrod. And, but my point is, is that hopefully with the context, or not the context, the context of the name Jezebel, most people don't go, I want my daughter to be called that, Jezebel. Um, but <laughs> like, she was not known for being an awesome person. But in 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19, we get this story of the King Ahab, who is the king of the northern tribes of Israel. When Israel was split as a nation, as you're reading through the Old Testament, when it says Israel during a certain portion of history, it's talking about the northern tribes, the northern kingdom. And then in the southern tribes, it's actually just called Judah. But that being said, they were in the northern tribes who were the first to be essentially split off and judged by the Lord and sent to Babylonian captivity. But in the height of its corruption, there was a Sidonian princess that married King Ahab at the time for a political alliance. And she did this, and it ultimately ends up corrupting Israel, not just politically, but also spiritually. Uh, now, what you need to know about Jezebel is she was very attractive, but she was devious, shrewd, and she worshipped Baal. Now, Ahab was a weak spiritual man. We see this all the time. Pretty girl, weak man, falls into sin, leads to corruption, and ultimately leads to death and mixed marriages in the nation of Israel. So Ahab is a, a weak man spiritually, and eventually, because he loved his wife, he built a temple and an altar where sacrifice was made to Baal in order to appease his wife. And so when Paul writes to the Corinthians not to be unequally yoked to non-believers, or in this case, non-Jews, 
He's saying that because when we marry someone that has a, a faith that's other than ours, we ultimately, because we love them, start to become like them, and then we start to do the things that they love. And if they're a person that worships things other than Jesus, we will end up doing that to appease them. And so Ahab did this. So what she did was she would persecute anyone who was a strong follower of Jehovah. She would not let them rest. She would not leave them be. But to anyone who was a weak follower of Jehovah, she'd let them live their compromised lives, and she would also require them to sacrifice to Baal. This is what we call syncretism. Syncretism is taking what you know about Jesus, worshiping him, and yet worshiping other things with him and and calling it Christianity. But the first of the commandments says, you shall have no other gods before me. It doesn't just mean things that you worship before Jesus. It also means things that you worship while worshiping Jesus. He's saying, you shall have no other gods in my presence. No other gods should be worshiped in my land for the Israelites. No other gods, no other preeminence should be taking place in my heart. And so I would ask you, compromise starts with worshiping idols. Now, maybe you don't have any idols set up in your home that you burn incense to, but what are the things in your life that take your time, your talents, and your finances, and Jesus is kind of just part of that. He's a piece. You know, maybe there are some of you in here that have, are realizing that you've added Jesus to your life rather than making him your life. And, and that's for the Lord to sift through. But syncretism is something that's going on today in our day and age. And I'm, again, not talking about the world. I'm talking about those who call themselves Christian followers. So here's the good news. He says about Jezebel, verse 21, he says, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Now, this is not Jezebel from 1 Kings chapter 16 through 19, who's still alive, obviously. This is in 96 AD, many, many hundreds of years after Kings was written. But the point is, is that there's this compromise going on in the church. The church is now married to Jezebel in some ways. She's not just hanging out, but they're actually letting her speak and teach in the church. And she's teaching things that she ought not, causing them to be corrupted by the ways of the world. But here's what Jesus says to this church. Even though Jezebel is who she says she is, and she's causing corruption, she's she's encouraging them in many ways. Maybe he's talking about these trade guilds. Maybe he's talking about how they are essentially politically involved and having influence over the politics inside the church. And causing them to do these sexual immoral, sexually immoral rituals and pouring out oblations to these foreign gods. Uh, I don't know, but he says, I gave her time to repent. Jesus gives the ungodly and the wicked, even the false teachers, time to repent. He is long-suffering. He's patient. And yet he says in the second part of verse 21, I gave her time to repent of her sexual immorality, and she did not repent. Indeed, verse 22, I will cast her into a sickbed, 
and those who commit adultery with her into, a great, into great tribulation unless they repent of their deeds. So interestingly enough, uh, there are multiple views, and we have not gone over these yet, about the tribulation period. Many believe that the tribulation period is a time where everyone in the world will go through it, a time of, of trial unlike anything the world has ever seen. And it's described, and we're going to go through that in the book of Revelation. There are also many Christians who believe that the church actually will be pulled out before tribulation. And we see that in the book of Daniel, where Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, or Hananiah, Azariah, and Mishael, are actually allowed to go through the fiery furnace, but mysteriously, Daniel is not there. He's not in the fiery furnace. So many believe that that and other scriptures like it are actually pointing to the fact that, that the believers, the church, will be raptured, there will be a trumpet call, and that we will be pulled out before the world goes into chaos and a tailspin. But in this case, he says, no matter where you stand on the tribulational view, he says this, for those that are also following the teaching and committing sexual immorality with this teacher Jezebel and have corrupted faith, they will be sent into the tribulation period. So I believe that in some form or fashion, there will be a section of the church that will go through the tribulation period if they do not repent. And I want to throw that on there. If. If they do not repent. And so uh, the consequences of this sexual immorality and this mixture of religion of sorts is that Jezebel will be judged and those who have compromised their faith and corrupted their faith by following her teacher, teachings will also go into the tribulation. And those who not only are doing that, but also their children will experience death. Jesus will judge each one according to their deeds, according to their works, according to not only their works, but their intentions. He sees not just what we do, but why we do it. But I would submit to you that he is long-suffering, not willing that any should perish. I have there for you up above 2 Peter chapter 3, verse 9. He's not slack concerning his promise, as some would consider slackness. And there are scoffers today saying that if God's a God and he sees things clearly and he's all-powerful, why isn't he, he judging the ungodly? But I would submit to you what Peter said God's long-suffering. He's patient. He's actually, whether you believe this or not, he's not willing that any should perish. You think about the most ungodly person that ever existed. Think about the most ungodly person in your life. Jesus is not willing that they should perish in their sin. Did you know that? That's why he sent us to be ministers of reconciliation, not between us and them, but between them and God, just like he sent somebody into yours and my life to express, hey, Jesus loves you. How can he love me? He does, I'm telling you. I don't know either. I don't know how he loved me. But then Jesus will judge righteously if they do not repent. But then in verse 24, although I haven't read verse 23, he says, verse 23, I will kill her children with death, and all the churches shall know that I am he who searches the minds and the hearts. And I will give to each one of you according to your works. Now, I don't know about you guys, but that sentence right there, I will give 
judgment to each one of you according to your works. Now, if you're in Christ, we're not talking about the judgment that decides between you going to hell and you going to heaven. For the believer, that's a judgment of our works. The wood, hay, and stubble, the stuff that we did in our own strength, the stuff that we did for us, and, and the precious gold, silver, and jewels, the stuff that we did in faith in Jesus. And so he says, to each one of your works, you will be rewarded according to your works. Verse 24, now to you I say, and to the rest in Thyatira, as many as do not have this doctrine, and he's speaking back to the doctrine and following of Jezebel and her teachings, to, to those of you that, that do not have the teachings of Jezebel, who have not known the depths of Satan, who haven't been deceived and followed his way, as they say, I will put on you no other burden. So in verse 24, he's saying to those who are not corrupted. What's interesting is that many teachers see this as a picture of the Catholic Church. Now, for you Roman Catholics, anybody that might have Roman Catholic background or anybody that's listening online that might have a Roman Catholic background, the Protestant Church gets theirs next week as we go to the letter of Sardis. You know, we've got our own problems. But to this church that, that may have been corrupted and, and that many see as the Catholic Church, there are those amongst you, there are those amongst this corrupted church even, that, that are faithful. Some of my favorite Christians are actually Catholics. And, and many times, those that, that don't quite understand Jesus and are in the Catholic Church, they're so zealous for their faith. Think about it. Think about the Catholics that you know and read what he has to say that are good here. He says, I know your works, your love, the way you serve, your faith, and your patience. And their works are multiplied. Think about the cause of those that, that are, are against abortion. Most of the people that go to those marches, by the way, they are Catholic. They, they're going for the cause. And, and so I point out that to say that amongst believers in the Catholic Church, there are those who are faithful to the end. And he says, because of that, I'm not going to put on you any other burden. And, and what's interesting to me is that those who are putting up with these doctrines of Jezebel, he says, I'm not going to lay on you any other weight. Sometimes bearing up under and being long-suffering with the Christians that surround you that say they are and walk as if they ain't, that's more of a burden than walking with non-believers because it's frustrating. It's hypocritical. It'll wear you out. Now think about the people that say, I'm not going to go to church. There's too many hypocrites there. It, it, it's It's... It's a stench even in the nostrils of the world. But then he goes on to say, verse 25, hold fast what you have till I come. And he who overcomes and keeps my works until the end, to him I will give power over the nations. Verse 27, he says, and he quotes Psalm chapter 2, verse 9, he shall rule them with a rod of iron and they shall be dashed to pieces like the potter's vessels. As, also I, as I also have received from my Father, and I will give him the morning star. And so Jesus says to those who overcome, those who hold fast to me, those who have anchored their lives in Jesus Christ, even in this church, they couldn't go down the street and just be like, I'm going to go to some different church. They didn't have it like you and I have. 
That, that was the one gathering place for believers. And so because of that, he says to you, not only will I not place another burden on you, but to you who overcome in this circumstance, I will give authority over the nations and you will be put in seats of judgment when the kingdom age of Christ comes. When Jesus comes down, sets up his earthly throne and the kingdoms and the nations will be judged and run by his authority, he says, I'm going to put you on judgment seats. You've been faithful in a few things. I'm going to be, make you master over many. And, and I don't know how this all pans out, but in 2 Timothy chapter 2, verse 12, Paul writes to Timothy, he says, If we Christians endure, we shall also reign with him. And I would submit to you that this is the same truth, that in the kingdom age of Christ, we will be co-rulers with Christ. Wrap your mind around that. It's, it's just unfathomable. I don't know how that's going to look. I don't know how it's going to play out, but I want to be a part of that. But he says, even amongst that, if that's not something you grasp for, he says, to those who overcome, verse 28, I will give the morning star. And if you turn to Revelation chapter 22, verse 16, Jesus explains what the morning star is. He says, I am the bright and morning star. And I'm going to go there and read verse 16 real quick because I think it's important. He says two things about himself. He says, I, Jesus, have sent my angel to testify to you these things in the churches. I am the root and the offspring of David, speaking to his messianic lineage, that this is Jesus, the same who came as a baby in his first coming. But then he says, I am the bright and the morning star. And so with that being said, to those who stay faithful, the gift, the, the prize, is that he gives us what? himself. He gives us himself. Now think about this in the context of marriage. When a husband and a wife get married, they give to each other what gift? I'm not talking about a shower. I'm not talking about when they go on their honeymoon and they go to wherever resort they go to. I'm talking about what is the ultimate gift they're giving each other? They're giving each other themselves. Here, Here's my mind. Here's my body. Here, here's everything about me to you. And Jesus did that for us. He laid aside his kingdom. He came down to us. He put on human flesh to give us what? His body, holy. And so because of that, I want to turn to Ephesians chapter 5, which is a very common passage when we talk about marriage. But Paul says... I speak a mystery to you about marriage, but the mystery is about Jesus Christ. In Ephesians chapter 5, verse 25, he says, Husbands, love your wives just as Christ also loved the church and gave himself for her that he might set her apart and cleanse her with the washing of water by the word that he might present her to himself a glorious church, not having spot or wrinkle or any such thing, but that she should be holy. The word means pure or other and without blemish. So Jesus is presenting his bride. He's cleansing us. He's preparing us for the ultimate consummation of the marriage. And in the meantime, we are as the church not married to Christ yet. 
we are engaged, or in the Jewish tradition, we are betrothed. In order to be unbetrothed in the Jewish culture, you had to be divorced. Even though you were not officially married yet, you were betrothed. You were engaged. In order to break off the engagement, you had to get an official divorce decree. But what's interesting about that is that during that time, you were expected to be chaste and pure and prepared for the wedding. And on the day of the wedding, you would consummate. You would give each other your bodies. And yet with the teaching of Jezebel in the church, there was sexual immorality. And even if it wasn't sexual immorality, in the Old Testament and in the New, when we give ourselves to something other than just Jesus, it's looked at and called spiritual fornication. As if we've been unfaithful to our husband And so when Jesus Christ returns, the question becomes, will he find that we have been faithful to him as a virgin to her betrothed husband? Or will he find us to have been unfaithful to him by flirting and committing spiritual fornication with other spiritual lovers? I think that's a hard question because only God can search our hearts and reveal to us ways that we've been unfaithful to him. Think of his jealousy. He's jealous for us. Not not jealous like a jealous husband that has no grounds for it, but jealous like a holy God who has paid the dowry for this relationship. He's done all that he can to make it possible to marry his bride. Who's his bride? You and I. We owe it to him to be faithful, to be without spot or blemish, to do all that depends upon us, not to make him jealous. So his word to Thyatira is, put away your adulterous relationship, repent and return to me. He doesn't say, off with you, you unfaithful fill in the blank. What he says is, I'm willing to receive you back into my home. Repent, return to me. I'm willing to be yours still. So I don't know if that meets anybody where they're at this morning, but I know that God desires us. He, he loves us. He's done everything to give himself for us. All we have to offer is what we have to offer. I don't know about you, but when I think about that and what I have to offer, I showed up having given myself to over to all kinds of other uncleanness. And yet when I come to him, he says, welcome in. And I'm like, I... I feel naked, I feel unclothed, I feel, I feel like a whore. I feel like I've given myself to so many other things, and yet he says, in Christ you're cleansed, you're forgiven, you're made completely new, and I love you like my own bride. Could we receive that this morning? So Father, we, I'm not worthy to even speak into your throne room. I'm not worthy to be called a child of God, let alone your bride.